Good morning. Let's begin class of prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for the abundant blessings you've provided us, the truth about your character, the love that you have for us, the privilege of sharing this message with others. We ask that you will uh, join us today, enlighten our minds, draw us closer to you. Pray in your holy name. Amen. And a couple of announcements. First, I just want to thank you, the class, and our online class for all the ongoing support that has enabled us to to do so much. I was at a uh, conference this week down at Seacoast Church, uh, which is a uh, evangelical church down at Charleston, South Carolina. Um, the uh, pastor of the church there is the president of a, a group of churches of 500 churches. They personally have campus churches of about 15 or 20, 70,000 members in this organized system of churches, and and uh, we were there with the American. Association of Christian Counselors. I did a couple of programs there, gave away our materials, which richly received, they, and they, they are just embracing and loving this picture of God. And people are coming up to us um, from all over the country telling us how they've been using our materials in their Sunday school classes, in their church schools, in their college classes. Um, and so the materials are really getting out there and reaching people. So, And that's because of all you who have, have enabled us to do this. Additionally, we are excited to announce that we now have the hard copy version of the Remedy out. Just finally came out of the press this week. If you're interested in, in getting free over here, we printed 10,000 to give away. So uh, 2,000 are being given away today at JFest. Take some today if you'd like to share with people. This is, this is a project that took 12 years, um, the New Testament paraphrase, and it's, it's a red letter edition. So um, I hope you'll enjoy that and share it with people. So those are available. If you're in uh, the U.S. and you're online and want those, just email us with the U.S. address. We'll ship them to you. If you're in Canada, then email Canada at CommonReason.com, and we're sending a few to Canada. In Australia, New Zealand, e- email Australia at CommonReason.com. So that's Canada at CommonReason.com, or Australia at CommonReason.com for Australia and New Zealand. And in the U.S., it's Orders at CommonReason.com. And just tell us how many you want, and we'll ship those out at no charge. And then I received this email this week from Gary, who is uh, heading up our uh, ministry in Canada. And he goes, as you, as you know, last month, Come and Reason Canada grew by nine people with the formation of a Come and Reason branch in Yarmouth, Nova Scotia. Well, so far this month, we have had one man asked to be baptized because of the Sure Word Bible Study Program that Come and Reason Canada, Kentville branch, puts on at a local non-denominational outreach center known as Open Arms. But that's not all. The man's wife would like to do Bible studies and get baptized with her husband. She comes from a Jehovah's Witness background, and because she did not follow the teachings of that organization in her youth, she and her family are shunned by some of the people in that organization. But she likes the changes she sees in her husband, and she is now willing to do the studies. But wait, there's more. One of the other men that comes to the class is looking at joining, or at least uh, going to the local SDA church, but that's not all. Yes, there's more. His wife has been watching the Come and Reason DVDs and is starting to get interested in the God, in the God is Love teachings. But wait, there's more. I volunteer at an open arms and work with men that are on their way to recovery from, well, you name it. Anyway, one of the guys is working doing construction work with the first guy I mentioned, and he also would like to start doing Bible studies. Hold on, just like the commercial, there's more. Uh, We have a seasonal worker here from Jamaica that uh, likes the God of love, not wrath approach to teaching, and he would like to have Come and Reason come to Jamaica this December and help set up a Come and Reason branch there. His dream is uh, to do full-time evangelism. So if Come and Reason Canada can work out some details, I will go to Jamaica this December. Did you notice the time of the year, winter? Yes, it's a hard job working with Come and Reason, but somebody has to do it. (laughs) 
God is good, but wait, there's more. One of the professors at a local university known as Acadia University is passing out your books to students that have shown a strong interest in the God of love. The best part is this last bit of news is some of the students are from other countries and other faiths and will be taking the books home with them this summer. Last, but to me most important of, uh, part is to say thanks to the Come and Reason class there in Tennessee and online and to all the supporters of the Come and Reason ministry. Without you, all the people just mentioned would have never heard this message at this time. And I believe God's timing is never wrong. Tell a friend, share the news. This message changes lives and puts the light where darkness once dwelled. Thank you for all, all your time and effort. God bless you, Gary. So just keep Gary in your prayers and the rest of our team at other parts of the world. We are doing lesson number 10 in the quarterly, the book of Matthew, and the title this week is Jesus in Jerusalem. In the first paragraph, it states, in Matthew 10, 27 and 28, Jesus said, And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Here is Jesus, this eternal God, the one who created all things, who lived the life of, of a servant here on earth, ministering to the needs of the lost, the sick, the needy, many of whom still scorned him. Such self-denial, such self-abnegation, uh, we can hardly begin to grasp. Any thoughts about that, this paragraph? That's absolutely incredible that this is the law of love, and it only comes from an orientation where you love others more than self. That's where it comes. But Jesus uses a metaphor here, the metaphor of ransom. And as you know, there are many metaphors of the atonement taught. What are some of the metaphors you've heard taught and what do they mean? How have you heard them taught? Not going to make me do all the work this week, are you guys? In fact, I want to challenge you today, there, there, if you throw out some of the metaphors of atonement that you've heard, we're going to see if we can't see how they fit into the seven levels of moral decision making. Remember the seven levels? Everybody with me? Okay. And I'll, I'll go through those, so if those haven't heard it before, it won't, won't be... For, but, but, but just throw out some theories of atonement. What have you heard? What are some theories? Why did Christ have to die? Ransom theory is one of them. Anybody know what the ransom theory states? Typically, not the way Jesus used it, the way it's taught by, by, by theologians throughout history. We've been captured and somebody's got to pay the ransom for us to get released. There you go. We've been captured. That's, that's a nice, succinct way to say it. Other theories, have you heard? Come on, the most classic. Penal substitution. The loss of dominion. The loss of dominion. Some might call governmental theory of atonement, too. So, so let's just go through this a little bit. Level one of moral development. How do you tell whether something's right or wrong? You know, it's the most primitive reward and punishment. It's right if you get a reward for it. It's wrong if you get punished for it. Well, how do, what theory of atonement is there? Well, because this is how it's understood in, uh, if you're at level one. Because God said, don't do something. They did it. They disobeyed what God said not to do. This dishonored God. God was offended, and his justice responded with angry vengeance to execute the disobedient but, uh, and to satisfy his outrage. However, Jesus stepped in and became humanity's substitute and God killed him in our place and is satisfied that his honor and justice are preserved. This is the satisfaction theory of atonement, level one. Have you ever heard of the satisfaction theory? God, God needed satisfaction. Level two, marketplace exchange, 
how do you determine whether something's right or wrong? It's, it's, well, you do something for me in an agreed, a deal that comes back to you. So if you do this and, and I'll do that for you and we have an agreement, we make a, we make a marketplace exchange. Um, because earth and humanity was now the legal, legal and or other claimed property of Satan under Satan's control, the devil claimed legal rights to the earth and the lives of the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. Therefore, God struck a bargain with the devil to exchange the life of Christ for the lives of the rest of humanity. This is the ransom theory of atonement. The way it's often taught. Social conformity. How do you tell whether something's right or wrong or not? Well, everyone's doing it. If everybody else says it's right, it's right. Well, because everyone must be convinced of the fairness of God in punishing sin, somebody had to pay so that God can be seen as fair in how he deals with sin and sinners. And Jesus is the one who pays that price. This is the governmental theory of atonement. Law and order. Right and wrong is determined by a codified system of laws and rules. Uh, um, adjudicated by impartial or supposedly impartial judges. In this view, Jesus dies to pay the legal penalty the law demanded and the heavenly judge imposed. The law must be kept. Man broke the law and justice requires the imposition of the proper punishment. Someone had to be executed to pay the legal penalty. Jesus becomes our substitute, was executed in our place by the Father as the righteous judge, in this view, to pay that penalty. The integrity of the law is maintained and sinners can be pardoned if they claim the legal penalty paid by Jesus. This is the penal substitution view of atonement. Level five, as you mature and go past rules and order, level five is love for others. And how do you tell whether something's right or wrong? Because it's actually in the best interest of the other person. Thus, a typical example would be a person operating at level five realizes that African Americans have value Even though Jim Crow laws may discriminate against them, they don't follow the Jim Crow laws. They do what's right for the person. So the rules don't override what what love would say to do. In this view, sin separated us from God and corrupted our hearts so that we no longer trusted God. But God loved us too much to let us go. So Christ's death was the means to reach us with his love and restore us back to trust. This is the moral influence theory of atonement. Principle-based living. How do you know whether something's right or wrong? It's because you understand that God has actually constructed reality to work this way. This is his design, and it's right because you're in harmony with the protocols upon which he's built life to work. In this view, Christ's death and resurrection is understood to be the only means to fix what sin had done to God's creation. When mankind sinned, the condition of humankind was changed. God wasn't changed. God's law wasn't changed. But the heart and nature of mankind had been changed to be out of harmony with God and his design. Humankind was now held in the bondage of their own condition, sinfulness, carnal nature, their own terminal state, dead in trespass and sin, they were dying, and the lies told by Satan that kept them from trusting. Christ came to break these powers and fix what sin did to the creation. Thus, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is both the Christus Victor and the recapitulation theories of atonement. And then number seven level of development is understanding friend of God. This is John fifteen fifteen, where Jesus says, I no longer call you slaves or servants, rather I call you friends, because servants don't understand what their master is doing, and I've let you in on everything. And so understanding friend of God not only understands that it was necessary to restore God's love in our hearts, it was not only necessary to break the uh, powers that held us in captivity, the, the destroy the carnal nature, establish a new character, destroy the lies of Satan, all the things that level 5 and 6 say, but also understand that God has a larger purpose than the salvation of humankind. That he has a whole universe to secure. And that at level 7, all things, First Colossians one twenty, all things in heaven and in earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross. 
Atonement at level 7 is understood in its true biblical meaning of at one mint, bringing all things together under one head, Jesus Christ. As Jesus prayed, Father, I pray those who believe in me through this message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I in you. This, is the, this unity is the mystery of God, his secret plan to heal all who trust him while eliminating all deviations from his design, sin and sinners, unrepentant sinners, in such a way that the saved, along with the unfallen intelligence, will be solidified in their loyalty and trust of God. This is only possible through the accomplishments of Christ. And so, thus the scripture says, And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to the, his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ. The mystery to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. And what is the mystery? To bring all things in heaven and in earth together under one head, even Jesus Christ. This is level seven. And so, when you get to level seven, you can look back on the metaphor that Christ used, ransom, and you can realize there is a a level seven understanding of that metaphor. You don't have to stay stuck at level two. And what's a level seven understanding of the metaphor? Well, a ransom functions to do what? Its function, its purpose is to free someone held in captivity or bondage. What is it that actually holds us in bondage? Our own carnal natures and the lies about God that we believe. And thus, through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, we are given the truth, Second uh, Hebrews 2.14, by his death he destroy him who hold the power of death that is the devil, Okay, we're given the truth that destroys the devil's power, the power of lies, and we get a new nature because Christ in his humanity developed a perfect character. And thus he offers to give that to all who trust him. So it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And so who's the ransom paid to? Who needed the truth to win them to trust? We did. That's right. And that's why Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me metaphorically. He didn't say, unless my flesh and blood are offered to my father as a payment, you can have no part with me. He never said that. Never did that. The application is always inside the sinner. We need to be transformed. Yes. Hand somewhere. Yes. I just got thinking when you were talking about this, that this not only affects those held against their will and ransom, but those who are affected with the Stockholm Syndrome, those who... Those who identify even in their mentality with their captor and sympathize with their captor. I and mean, that's what, that's what our carnal nature does. We're born at enmity with God's ways and methods and principles. And this, this level seven understanding frees and ransoms us from that. That's from exactly that right. Syndrome, from the identity of, of, that we have with our, the lies that we believe. And it, yes, it gives us a new identity, a new heart. We become children of God, adopted into the game. All these other metaphors come into bear once you reach that level seven understanding of how reality works. Now, I went through that really fast. Hopefully that triggered questions in your mind. Any questions about that? I will tell you, this issue is the issue that we get so much opposition on. Because people at level four and below for some reason, resist going to different understandings of the atonement. Now, did anybody hear me say anything like this? Christ's death was not necessary for our salvation. Did anybody hear me say that? No. I did not say that. It was absolutely necessary. There's no other way for us to be saved. Was Christ's death necessary to appease the Father? No. To propitiate the Father's wrath? No, it wasn't. There's no, there's, the, there was nothing wrong with the Father. The Father didn't need something done to him. And that's the, the great infection of most of Christian thought is that there's something wrong with the Father that needs fixing by the death of Jesus. But it's 500 years of 
Protestant church tradition. Yeah, Russell was uh, tongue-in-cheek making a comment because we had a, a, a meeting with uh, some, some church leaders, and one of the church leaders said that they couldn't support what we're doing over here because we're upsetting 500 years of church, church teaching. This idea that, in fact, God was upset and he did need to be appeased. Specifically, our view of atonement. Our view of atonement, yeah. Well, Tim, is yes. it true that there are a lot of people who feel that your approach to the salvation model is too, quote, simplistic? That there's, this doesn't cover enough of a broad spectrum that they expect you to cover so, every time you open your mouth. Thank you for bringing that up. So here's how that, that is articulated. And, and it comes from people who are quite pious. <laughs> The scripture is rich with many metaphors of the atonement. Dr. Jennings presents one metaphor and ignores the many other metaphors like uh, penal, ransom, and so forth. Okay, this is what they say. Now, pause. So you understand how to deal with this. And I'm going to get your question one second. Let 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 me finish this point. So if you ever have anything to say that about what we teach, metaphor is only metaphor as long as it's directly tied to some cosmic reality. If there is no reality to which the metaphor points, it's no longer metaphor, it's fantasy. Okay? Now you ask, now you answer me the question. Is recreation into godliness where we actually get new hearts, motives, desires, the selfishness is removed, love is replaced? Is that metaphor or is that reality? Reality. You see, this is what they do. They take reality and they bury it in metaphor where you lose it. What we do is we point out that all the beautiful metaphors, ransom, law, all these other ones, they are metaphors pointing to the reality, which is a new heart, right spirit, a new way of living. That's the reality recreation. It's not metaphor. So, no, ours is much deeper and much richer than theirs. Yes? Sometimes I think we become so involved in figuring it out that we fail to experience the relationship. Matthew 18, when the disciples are having an argument, Christ puts a child in the middle of it and says, unless you're converted like the child, you'll never get to heaven. What does that mean? A child doesn't have it figured out. A child experiences a relationship despite the fact they don't understand the details. We can transcend understanding the details because you have passages in Jeremiah that speak of those that have no knowledge of Scripture. They are true to conscience. This is also found in Romans 2. Beautiful. And so I think that it's very important We are not saved by figuring it out. We are saved because we are willing to experience a relationship that transcends our ability to figure it out. Well, I'm going to take you on your word right there. Let's let's pick this up with this idea of becoming like a child. What did Jesus also say about those who mistreat the children? What should happen to them? It would be better if a millstone was tied around your neck. Okay, so has anybody ever dealt with children who were molested or abused? adults that were met or abused as children. So unless we become like a child, but how about if you're dealing with a person whose child, who's, who as a child, their parents abused and molested and mistreated them. And that's the view that they now have in their head about God. They have an experience. They have a real experience with God, as you're saying. And their experience is he can't be trusted. He'll hurt me. Now, do they have to figure something out? 
Can they just be like little children and take their childhood experience? Or does their childhood experience have to be reprocessed in a different light now? And see that God is not like what their parents did to them. But I think the teachability... The point I'm getting at, many Christians... Hebrews chapter 5 and 6, though you ought to be on meat, you are still on milk. Milk, those who are on milk, according to Paul, are not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. So if we stay on milk, we don't get righteous. Why? Because we're like children tossed back and forth by all the winds of doctrine that come along. And oftentimes, it, what, what, what my premise in Christianity is, that God, the, the predominant view of God presented in Christianity, not exclusive, notice, there are places you find a beautiful picture of God presented. But the predominant picture of God presented in Christianity is a picture of a cosmic dictator who must, will torture you in hell for either eternity or as long as you deserve if you don't do things his way. Thus, people create doctrines, functionally, that are designed to hide them and protect them from God. So I love the part we should become little children, but that only is safe if you're dealing with someone who loves you more than themselves. If a little child is dealing with a pedophile and a predator, then then we shouldn't be like a little children because we'll get exploited and abused and destroyed. And many people are given a picture of God who is not their friend to protect them, who's the one who's going to get them because they stole a cookie and he's going to burn them in hell for it. So we have to do both, don't we? Be like little children in a relation with a God who's actually trustworthy. Yeah. And from personal experience, God will come to you if nobody else will and let you know he loved you and that he sat beside you and he held your hand while you went through those experiences and he went through them with you. That people have right to choice and unfortunately some of their choices aren't good ones. That's right. And so I was using the metaphor of the of the real physical abuse by a real parent and that was metaphorical to Children who are raised in homes where they're not necessarily physically abused, but they're given pictures of God that mentally and spiritually abuse them that are very harsh and punishing and fear-inducing. And, 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 and thus, as children, they have a view of God that they don't trust because that's how they were taught as kids. Am I the only one that's ever come across that? No. No. Yes. And as a child, children don't have the organizational structure in place that will come later in their life. There's more of a universal trust that they have. And it's not until they get to the older parts that you get the organizational structures of of gangs, I don't say gangs, but of, of friends and clusters. And extrapolating that to what we see in religion, I I can't help but feel that the broad spectrum of organized religion over the years has done more damage to, to what Christ intended because organized religion across the spectrums right. is more intended in continuing organized religion than they are in continuing Christ. So let, let's see if I can't even break this down even more, putting these pieces together. When children are growing, when a child is born into the world, an infant, what does the infant know of anything? Even love. What do they know of anything? Nothing. Nothing. They're blank slates, basically. And so everything from that point will be assimilated from experience, uh, from experience of how they're treated, held, beaten, whatever, from what they're taught, what they're told. You can tell a small child that the sky is green and the grass is blue, and if no one else tells them differently, they'll grow up thinking that's what blue and green are. I mean, they don't know. They're just, they're just assimilating from what they're told. Okay. Now, Satan is the father of lies. And lies have two spheres inside you primarily where they work. Your understanding of the world around you and your understanding of yourself, your identity, your individuality, your core self, your character, if you will. Okay? Now, 
Lies are destructive no matter where they operate, but they're most destructive when they operate in the core self. I'll give you an example. If someone told you a lie today that your five-year-old child was being molested by your brother, and it's not true, but, but you believe the lie, can you see damage that would come from that, from believing that lie? Lots of damage would come. And, and, and we can see and we can plot out a lot of predictable consequences and things that would come from that. But that damage is not as bad is when a person who's been molested, abused, mistreated as a child forms these lies internal to the core. See, that first lie is something's happening in my world around me. Okay? The other, these are the lies. I'm gross. I'm ugly. I'm dirty. I'm defective. Or they raise it in a home in which there is an oppressive guilt punishing, rules checking God. I'm a sinner. I am, I am, I am under condemnation. I deserve death. I don't deserve mercy. Uh, and they deform these, these lies in, internal to their core self. Okay, and they become deeply embedded where they're not even consciously thinking them anymore. They just function on them. That's, that's the platform from which they operate. This is why it's woe to you to mistreat the little children because in the mistreatment of the little children, you're actually putting these lies into the core sense of their self. They don't experience themselves as children of God who are loved and valuable. They experience themselves as children of wrath who need to be punished and condemned. Okay? And so, yes, I agree with you. We must come back like little children, but... You know, what view of God do we hold will depend on the experience as little children we have with God. Yes. It's especially bad when, for example, a priest molests a child. I read an article where the girl said she was molested by the priest. And then he would come back to her and tell her she was condemned to hell for her participation in that. Yes. You know, so, I mean, that's a double whammy. This person in the place of God is doing you damage and then telling you because he did that damage, now you are going to be punished eternally for that. So, so it is critical. This is why Jesus said, this is life eternal. This is Jesus, not me now. That you might have your legal penalty paid. Now, is that what he's at? This is life eternal, they might... No. And in Bible context, we understand that word no is not know about. It is that intimate knowledge in relationship with experiences. We know God for who he is. We've experienced him like a child, but it has to be the right God. If we, if we have this knowledge of God, but the knowledge of God that we have is this distorted view. Romans 1 tells us when that happens, the mind becomes dark and depraved and futile. It's destructive to have a knowledge of a distorted view of God. Yes. There are three things that a disciple of Christ could do that Christ did. They were disciples of a rabbi in Christ's time. They looked at the rabbi to see how the Torah was lived. They tried to understand the teachings of the rabbi. Now, what can we do that Christ did? He helped people. Absolutely. He asked questions that got people to think and he told metaphorical stories that had relational symbolism. Now, if we are going to be disciples, it means that we need to be involved the way that Christ would have us involved, and that includes, you might say, every disciple active in some way in helping others, in community, in church, whatever. And sometimes I think the challenge that we face is paralysis of analysis. We're always trying to figure out, and we need to experience the relationship of making a difference in the lives of others. Well said. No, well said. If you're exactly right. Um, if you're not putting it into practice, you're not sharing, you're not giving, then it's not real. 
That's one of the laws, one of the design laws. Strength comes from exercise, law of exertion. And the more you give, the more you will. Because you can't receive more into your heart unless you're starting to give it away. But the more you give away, the more love that you receive into your heart. The more, the more you practice your mathematics, the more mathematical abilities you get. This is just God's design. So yes, if we want to grow in godliness, we must act godly. We must give. We must share. How do you experience love if you're not loving, you see? And I, I think this is the challenge that we face. How do we take the opportunity of people that need help and responding in ways that we can make a difference? And love, this is where he comes back to principle-based living. You can't make a checklist on love. Amen. You can't do it. Sometimes love will caress and hold and smile and hug and kiss and, and give presents and, and praise. Sometimes love will shout. We'll yell. We'll maybe even threaten. Your child's on their tricycle running, riding towards the street and a truck's coming. You might have to, if you don't stop, I'm going to give you a spanking. That's an act of love, isn't it? Yeah, so, so love does different things, but it's always that the orientation is, how can I do what's best for that person's eternal interest? How can I use my... Sometimes love stands silently and doesn't do anything. That person needs to experience for themselves. They need to... Because you, you can't... It's like with, with physical therapy, right, Russell? You can't do the exercises for somebody else and have them get strong. Each person has to be brought to points in their life where they have to make decisions for themselves. We can educate, we can cheer on, we can encourage, we can praise, we can point, but at some point they've got to do the work, don't they? They've got to make the choice. Yeah, it's good stuff. Sunday's lesson... Focus on the time the Jews returned from 70-year captivity and rebuilt the temple. The elders who had seen Solomon's temple cried out in distress that this little temple is so puny and small. But God had his prophets show up and prophesy that the second temple would be more glorious than the first temple. How was the second temple, even though it's puny and small, more glorious than the first temple? Okay, this is exactly right. God himself in it. But wait, when Solomon's temple was dedicated... What happened that day? They couldn't enter it because who showed up? So God himself came to both temples. But even though he came to both temples, the second one's more glorious. What was different about his coming to the second temple than his coming to the first temple? He was more clearly revealed of who he was. What what was more clearly revealed? They they couldn't even go in and see him at the the first temple. What was more clearly revealed? You're right. You're exactly. There we go. So all of you are right. Every one of you are right. At the second temple, see, the issue in the controversy between Christ and Satan was the question that Satan raised ever about power, about who has the power, who has most power. I'm stronger. I can beat him in an arm wrestling contest. I'm more powerful. Did Satan ever allege these things? It was never that God was not powerful. The question was always, you can't trust him with the power. He'll hurt you. He'll threaten you. He'll kill you. He'll punish you. He, he, we don't have real freedom. He's got a gun to our head. This was the issue of power. And what do we see at the second temple? He divested himself of the access and use of that power. He let his own creatures, his own creatures, abuse him rather than use his power to protect himself. You see the old statement, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. But this is why in Revelation, every time you get the, the spotlight focusing back up on heaven, in Revelation you see the spotlight focusing earth, heaven, earth, heaven. Back in heaven, the angels are going, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. What's he worthy of? 
of having all power, all power and all authority even given to me. Why is it worthy? Because he's proven that he is absolutely uncorruptible with power. We can be safe in this universe. It's beautiful. I think when he was 12 years old in the temple, Desire of Ages says that he made it look like they were teaching him. Yes, yes, yes. When he was 12 years old in the temple, while he was trying to teach them things, he was so unassuming it made them think that they were teaching him things. <laughs> yes, that's well said. Um, so with this idea in mind of God's glory so far as being his character, remember the second temple is more glorious, and what we say is more glorious is the beauty of his character that was full more fully revealed there. Does that have any bearing on Revelation 14, the first angel's message? Fear God and give glory to him. Does, does this idea of, of the second temple be more glorious have any bearing on how you understand that passage? What does it mean to give him glory? How do we give him glory? I think it's because we, we begin to understand who he really is, relate to who he really is, and, the, and trust him enough to let us in, let him into our hearts and change us. And the fact that he cures us gives him the glory for doing all the there's a Bible verse that says, all we've accomplished, you have done for us. Okay, brilliant, brilliant. Now, if you, if you had uh, people who were really, really bad with metastatic cancer and they were just, oh, I mean, on death's door, they looked really, really, dis- you know, cachectic and, and just, and the doctor came in and gave them one single pill and you just watched and whew, they were just restored to the beautiful. Wouldn't they be a, a powerful testimony to that doctor? Now, what, 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 yeah, what, what that doctor and what he's provided for them. Yes, and he's created the remedy and he's providing it for them. Uh, but do they get to take any glory to themselves? No. So I like the way you said that. So Ezekiel chapter 36, 22 through 27 says the following, following. Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name. What's the name symbolic of in Bible? Care of my holy character, in other words, which you have profaned among the nations where you've gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This is what you said, healing. He, see, this is, the, this is still speaking metaphorical, taking out a heart of stone. It's not actually a, a heart made out of stone, but we understand the metaphor. It's talking about a heart that doesn't love, a heart that has no compassion, okay? And put in a heart that is capable of love again. Emotives in the heart. This is, this is pointing to the reality. This is talking about the reality. That God, through Christ, achieves what's necessary in order to transform us in the inner person to be in harmony and like God again. And when he does that, that's glorifying to him. And this is what the third angel's message is. Fear God, be in awe of him, be amazed, be overwhelmed with adoration, and give him glory. Reveal his character in your life. For it's time in human history for people to make a right decision about who God is. The hour of his judgment has come.
It says in the bottom paragraph, commenting on Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, it states, the multitude were convinced that the hour of their emancipation was at hand. In imagination, they saw the Roman armies driven from Jerusalem and Israel once more an independent nation. Was there emancipation at hand? Yes, it was. How? Or should I say, but from what were they being emancipated by Christ? What were they being emancipated from? That pharisaical uh, action-driven versus heart change of the loving God. So anybody else want to say it? I didn't disagree with you, but could you say it a different way? The disease of sin. They're being emancipated from the disease of sin, the condition of sinfulness. That's what they're being emancipated from, isn't it? They're actual captives. They view Rome as an occupier, but the reality was Satan's the occupier. Ah, yes. Were they really slaves of Rome or were they slaves of sin? What was really they were they really slaves of? In other words, if Rome had just disappeared, would they suddenly have, really be free in the way God wants us to be free? No, they're still slaves of sin and the carnal nature and fear, and, and they're also slaves of death. God wanted to set them free from the bondage of sin, fear, self-centeredness, death. Yes. I think one of the challenges is the people of Christ's time were looking to be established as the kingdom rather than the concept that uh, the atonement would make salvation a possible for all humanity. And so they were always looking to be people number one rather than servants. So what, what set them up to, what, what do you think set them up to have this idea that, to do just what you said, to be delivered as a, as a unique nation or a people? What set them up to, to think that's what they were, were going to be delivered for? Well, the thing that you might say was meaningful was it was through this community that the Messiah comes. They also were a witness to the concepts of God's way of doing things. Yeah, that's all true, but, the, but back to your point. They saw themselves as an exclusive group to be delivered from the occupying Romans, as you were saying. What, what prevented them from seeing beyond that? What was it that made them think? What were they missing that they couldn't see that there was a different deliverance coming? Ego. Conditioning. How about the failure to diagnose accurately the problem? Did they understand that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? All humanity is infected with the same condition. That all Gentiles sin, and it happened to the Gentiles, but not them. Right. That all are all are dis, all are sin, sinful in Adam, and the second Adam was. In other words, have, did they fail to recognize that when it comes to our our condition as sinners, that there was no difference between Jew and Greek, Jew and Roman? They are all the same. We're all suffering with the same infection of heart and need the same eternal healing. They failed to see that, didn't they? Yeah, and I think that failure, now, because they had an, exclu- an exclusive view of themselves, they were privileged in some way. They were special. Now they were special. But they weren't special in their condition of heart. Their condition of heart was the same condition of heart as the rest of the world. They had the same sickness. They weren't special as, well, we don't have sin. Uh, they have sin. We don't have sin. That, that wasn't what was special. They were special in that they had a cleaner line or availability of the knowledge of the remedy to sin. 
than the rest of the world. The rest of the world's access or awareness of the remedy was much more obscure, harder to get, to get the mind around. Israel had been privileged with all these, all these elements to bring to their awareness their real condition and the remedy that can fix it, right? But they missed that. How about Christianity today? Are we significantly different than Israel 2,000 years ago? And within, within Christianity itself, do we sometimes within Christianity consider that our particular organizational structure of Christianity is the exclusive enlightened body of Christianity? Anybody not part of this particular entity is not enlightened and not part of the body of Christ? Do we ever think that way? And then as Christians as a whole, Christianity as a whole, if you're not Christian, if you're, if you're Muslim or, or Buddhist or something else, then, then you're not part of the... the and we somehow do the same thing. Yes? It was a remarkable experience. When Mao Zedong took over China, there were about a million and a half Christians and people were very concerned. I was had opportunity to do independent study with Paul Quimby, who worked with Chiang Kai-shek. So I had some first-hand understandings. And what was interesting, a number of years later, out of China came a message that this I know people are doing well. Today, there are more Christians in China than any other country in the world, 80 million. Most of them meeting in home churches, not necessarily affiliated with any particular group. Mm -hmm. India has 60 million, many meeting in home churches, not affiliated. God has ways of touching people that transcend our imagination. Amen. Amen. I have to think that God prefers the non-affiliated. I think the factions of affiliated have boxed themselves in it's our brand or no brand, and you have to believe our brand. And God says, no, it's my brand. Okay. Yeah, I like where you're going with this. So what we identified was that with the Jews 2,000 years ago, they had a false diagnosis. They failed to recognize their condition was no different than the condition of every other human being. They missed that point. They thought that because Abraham was uh, chosen and the promises were made, that that set them exclusively apart. Do you know many Christians still think this way about Jews today? that Jews have a different pathway to salvation than the rest of us? Did you know that? Yes. Well, the Jews had the idea that God was dependent on their doing it. Some did. Some did. Some did. You know, people had to go through them. Are there Christians that feel that way today? Yes, there may be. (laughs) Some that are. But God has ways of working that transcend. So is there a false diagnosis that is common in Christianity today? Yes. What's the false diagnosis in Christianity today? Problems with God, not with humanity. Okay, problems with God, not with humanity. And the way, way we might say that is that our problem is that we're in legal trouble with God. That's the, that's the false diagnosis. Our problem is a legal problem, and we're in legal trouble with the authority. And we need to then have doctrines and teachings to protect us from the legal consequences. We need to have an advocate. And so the, the idea of an advocate, rather than being advocate with the Father, i.e., along with the Father. As it says in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who not spare us, but gave him up, how will not along with him give us all things? Who is it that condemns Christ Jesus? He is at the Father's right hand and is also interceding for us. We have an advocate along with the Father, but that's not how it's taught. We have an advocate with the Father, talking to, working on him. Say, we got it backwards. This is how many, many Christians see that in the judgment, we have Jesus as our defense attorney to protect us from the, from, remember my blood, Father, I've already paid their penalty. They've claimed the legal price. You have no right to hurt them. You've already, you've already vented your entire uh, battery of wrath on me, and I paid that price. So, uh, you know, remember the blood. And you, you, hopefully this is kind of ugly 
And it's offensive a little bit because it is. But this is the common view of God. Talking. If you don't believe me, just listen to Moody Radio for a week. Just for a week. Now, I can't even do it for a day. This is, this is so deeply embedded in Christian thought that you get this stuff constantly. And they're telling kids this kind of stuff. Rather than God was in the Son reconciling the world to himself. Or Jesus, remember the revelation that says that those that are ready to meet him when he comes, they, they hold to the testimony of Jesus. Right? And what's the testimony of Jesus? Some will, the King James Version says it, the spirit of prophecy, and that's been interpreted by one organizational group to mean red, red leather books. But a more accurate translation there would be, the testimony of Jesus is the same that, as the spirit who inspired the prophets. And what was Jesus' testimony? What did he actually say? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And thus those who are ready to meet Jesus give the same testimony. They hold the testimony. The Father's just like Jesus. That's the testimony of Jesus. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father I want. All this other stuff that Jesus is for us. He's paid the penalty. He protects us. He pleases. We have, he, we, we are now denying the testimony of Jesus. Yes. Um, can you look at this passage in the Bible where it says the Father, only the Father knows when the second coming is, not even the Son? Is, is yeah, that was during his humanity. Okay. We don't know how much of his knowledge database he picked back up when he ascended. <laughs> it hasn't been told to us. Um, but as a human being, there, it, he denied himself access to his divine prerogatives while he was here on earth and lived as a human being. And so as a human being, he didn't have that foreknowledge. Now, now that he's ascended... Has he picked that knowledge back up? I don't know. I, I, I assume he has. But reasonable to think that he's been involved in planning yeah, for the second coming. Sure. Yeah. All, all that all Peter and John wanted to sit on his right and left. Yes. He said that's up to my father. It's not up to me. Yes. We do have some very good news as a people, collectively, belief system, and one of the things where. The Adventist Information Ministry, when calls come in, they get more calls when the topic is about hell than any other topic. We have good news about hell. God doesn't torture people forever. How long does he torture them? How long? Yeah. I don't, frankly, I think it's post. In other words, he does... Wait, 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 wait now. No, no, no. You brought it up. Let's, let's, let's unpack this because this deserves unpacking. Okay? Let's not just fluff by it. Okay? There are different ways this is taught in Adventism. There's the passages in early writings and other places where as long as there's a piece of them left, there will be days and weeks suffering and the full force of the suffering is realized. You're familiar with those passages, aren't you? The last page of early writings is fairly clear. That's right. Exactly right. Satan suffers weeks on, in that fire before he's finally consumed. I'm not sure if time is mentioned specifically. Weeks. She mentions weeks. She mentions weeks? Yes. But on the last page... Or, or she might say many days suffering. Many days suffering. The last page mentions that there is a time differential, but I don't recall it. So, let's unpack this. We do have a good answer. Eternity and not ever ending. All right, but, but pause. I'm going to unpack this for you. A, because we, we do have a good answer, but it is not the answer you will get from a typical Adventist. Here's the typical Adventist answer. The evangelicals, they have you burning for all, all eternity, never ending, never ending. Adventists, they only have you burning as long as you deserve. That's your earned based on the deeds done in the body, there's a committee that will meet during the thousand years. They'll decide how many minutes you get, and then you burn that many minutes in the fire before God kills you, and it's ended. So it's, it's much more merciful. Unless you ask the question, wait a second, hold on. <clears throat> the evangelical view of eternal burning hell happens because of a false premise. Here's the false premise. They believe that at 
Eden, in Eden, when God created mankind in the beginning, he endowed them at that time with some part of their being, whether you call it spirit or soul, that is immortal and can never die. And once he gave them that immortality, they're immortal for all eternity, they can't die. Those who rebel and never reconcile, never repent, never come back, it breaks God's heart. He hates it. He doesn't want them to suffer, but they won't reconcile. They're in outer darkness in a place called hell for all eternity because, not because God wants them there, but because his hands are tied, because they're already immortal. The Adventist view, man are mortal. Immortality is a gift of God, only for the righteous. Therefore, God performs a miracle to keep them alive, to torture them for many days before he kills them. And what does that mean, God? Right. So both views are wrong. The true biblical view, as I understand it, start, start, start with Isaiah 33. Sinners in Zion, 33 verse 14. Sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Who can dwell with the consuming fire? Who can dwell with the eternal burning? He who walks righteously and keeps his hands away from murder, bribe, and extortion spends eternity in the fire, not the wicked. And if you go through scripture, you'll discover every time God shows up, Moses at the bush, what's the bush doing? It's burning. Solomon's temple, it's burning. Um, uh, he, uh, Sinai, it, it's burning. Uh, Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, uh, God takes his throne. The Ancient of Days uh, takes his throne and rivers of fire come out before him and 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands are standing in this fire. Uh, it says in Hebrews twelve twenty nine, our God is a consuming fire. The lie of Satan is the place you don't want to go and the place you don't want to be is the place of eternal burning and consuming fire and that place is God's very presence where the righteous will live forever in that presence being transformed as Moses, 40 days in the reflected glory, comes down, what's his face doing? Uh, but did he get third degree burns? Did his whiskers get burned off? No. This this fire is not the fire of combustion. Now, more evidence. Nadab and Abihu takes unauthorized fire in before the Lord, and fire comes out from the Lord and consumes them, and they die before the Lord. Next verse. This is Numbers. Uh, uh, Moses sends the cousins in and drags them out, according to Scripture, here's a quote, still in their tunics. Now, if I hit you with a flamethrower and burn you till you die, will you be in your clothes when you're done? No, the clothes get burned off before your skin gets burned off, you see? And so this fire that we think about from which consumes, this is the fire that consumes sin. So Ellen White, one of the founders of Adventist Church, wrote, to sin wherever it is found, our God is a consuming fire. And you have to identify what is sin made out of. This is wood. Sin is not made out of wood. It's not made out of matter. If I cut off a piece, if I cut off your big toe, I do not get a piece of sin. It's not made out of matter. It cannot be burned with combustion. Sin has two root elements. One, lies. Satan is the father of lies. What is it that burns out a lie? Truth. Truth. And the other is selfishness. And what burns out selfishness? Love. Unless the Holy Spirit is described in Scripture as the spirit of truth and love. And at Pentecost, when the Spirit fell, they saw two streams of fire the fire of truth and the fire of love but no one got third degree burns and the building didn't burn down then if you read in places like great controversy in other places you will read that as as the forces of satan march upon the 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 city of jerusalem after the thousand years christ rises above the city and fire comes down through the city where the righteous are and out through the gates over the land to consume the wicked. Now read it. Well, how, what is that telling you? That this fire is not harmful. This is the fire of love and truth, and the, and the righteous are living in it without harm. But what happens to those whose minds and hearts are solidified in lies and selfishness when they come into the 
presence of absolute, unveiled, infinite truth and love. Their lies, their denial, their self-distortion cannot stand there anymore. They get their experience of who they are in character. Their true condition, they are now aware of. Now, White puts it this way. It's a panoramic view in the sky written as if it were in letters of fire that comes into their mind. And this causes overwhelming agony from the unremedied sin condition itself in their own characters, and they beg for the mountains to follow them and hide them from this because they can't live there anymore. And thus you find that this is all design law stuff. This isn't an infliction. This isn't an imposed punishment. The Adventist view and its right understanding is so much more beautiful than that other view. But there is another way to present the Adventist view that actually is very ugly. And I want us to shoot that one down too. Yeah. Yes. Doesn't it also say their hearts fail them? It would, wouldn't it be like... Yes, I think that's exactly what's happening. They come overwhelmed and their hearts give in, yes. You walk into a dark room and you turn on the light, there is no darkness anymore. Yeah, and Ellen White actually says in um, Desire of Ages, I believe it's Desire of Ages, that, um, would, and I can't remember the exact quote, but it's talking about the idea of, would God take those who have hardened their hearts in selfishness and chain them to his throne in heaven? Love would not. Love is not joyful to the selfish. Truth is not, is not pleasurable to the deceitful. Uh, this would be agony to them. It would be torture to them. They would long to flee from his face. The death of the wicked, now this is a quote, the death of the wicked is voluntary with themselves and just and merciful on the part of God. See, they surrender. They don't want to live. They surrender their life. Every knee will bow. And they surrender their life back. God is not executing them. They do not want to live in a universe in harmony with God's own nature where he walks unveiled amongst us. It's it's a fantastic and beautiful teaching. Monday's lesson. Thanks for bringing it up. Monday's lesson. From the... uh, From the earliest days of fallen humanity, animal sacrifices were God's chosen means to teach the world the plan of salvation, salvation by grace through faith. Um, A powerful example of this truth can be found in Genesis 4, the story of Cain and Abel, and so forth. Um, What was the purpose of the animal sacrifices and what did they teach? The sin is death. The sin is death. I I like that. Uh, this is, I told you about Christian radio listen to. I, this, I listened to this on the Christian radio the week before Easter. Uh, somebody called in and asked a theologian, PhD in, in THD, whatever it is they get, THD in theology, um, what was the purpose of the Old Testament animal sacrifices? This is one paragraph. So what did they said? The reason for Leviticus 7, for, for that, there has to be punishment with death for sin. So in Leviticus 7, when an animal sacrifice is being established, it says this, any Israelite or any alien living among you who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from the people. For the life of the creatures in the blood, and I have given it to you to make an atonement for yourselves at the altar. It is the blood of the, that makes uh, atonement for one's life. See? Blood represents life, and there has to be the punishment of death for sin. So therefore, an animal had to take the punishment and give its life, its blood, so that the offerer could, could live. This was substitution, what my former professor here at Moody used to call the exchange of life. And they went on to say that in the Old Testament times, the animal gave its life so the sinner could have their life. In New Testament times, Jesus gave his life so you could have your life. Now, what's wrong with that theory? There's a whole lot wrong. It's, it's so rich and deep, you barely get, you know, you can just blindly reach and grab something that's going to be wrong. 
Seriously. It's, first off, it's based on a penal substitution false law construct. It's based on the idea that, God, that man's, God's law functions like our law. You break a rule, and you must have coercive enforcement of punishment. That's all false. God's law doesn't work that way. Secondly, it argues that there was a means of salvation separate from Christ. That people could actually be saved by sacrificing animals. You couldn't be saved. from The sacrifice of animals in Old Testament time had no bearing on salvation. Zero. We want evidence for this? Well, think of all the people who were saved without ever doing it. Think about, um, well, can you name any who were saved? But before I, while you're thinking of those, let me give you a couple Bible texts. Isaiah 1, 11, 16, 17. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? I have more than enough burnt offerings, rams of fat and fatted animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Wash and make, yourself, make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Micah 6, 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come with him with burnt offerings and calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? I mean, after all, if animal sacrifices are good, then human sacrifices must be even better. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Hebrews 9, 10, uh, nine, Hebrews 9, 9 and 10, and 10, 3 and 4. The gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the consciences of the worshiper. Those, they were only a matter of food and various ceremonial washing, external regulations applying to the time of the new order. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sin because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Impossible. And then I think maybe Hosea says it most succinctly. Hosea 6.6. 6. Listen to what Hosea 6.6 6 says. I want your constant love, not your animal sacrifices. I would rather have my people know me than burn offerings to me. I mean, it's always been the same. So in the Old Testament times, Naaman, we have no record of Naaman offering animal sacrifices to God. Nebuchadnezzar, Melchizedek, Daniel and his three friends, 70 years of captivity, no temple, no place to do this. Um, Esther and Mordecai, they're still in captivity and the temple's away a long way. Uh, Jethro, the widow who res- and, and the resurrected son that housed Elijah. There are many people in the Old Testament never did animal sacrifices. It wasn't required. It was simply a teaching tool. And what do you think it was designed to teach? I like where Wendell was going with this. So we're about out of time, so I'm going to rush you through this. But imagine that you have a lamb, a baby sheep, a lamb, that you have to look in its eyes, and you have to take a knife. Well, it's, it's trusting, it's sweet, it's gentle. These little lambs, they are just so sweet and gentle. And you're looking in its eyes as you confess sin, and you've got to cut its throat, and you've got to watch its life bleed out as it's looking into your eyes. Do you think there's a lesson in that? I think the first primary lesson was to make us sick. To make us sick. To actually cause us. Because the reason we're cutting the throat would be that we did some sin. And it would make us so sick that we would never want to do that again. That's what his primary purpose for. And then all the other lessons that we can go through symbolically. But I think that one, when we talk all the symbolisms, we often miss that one. But I think it was a gut reaction to make you hate it. I never, never want to have to go through that again, ever. And then you extrapolate that up, looking in the eyes of Jesus.
when Adam and Eve had felt the same way. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was even more so. I think it was way beyond. Ellen White talks about when he saw the first leaf fall off the tree. It's his, he grieved like we do when we lose a loved one. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are very, in many ways, dull. Our senses, our perceptions of your true kingdom of love and, and how much you have sacrificed to reach us with your truth and, and your healing, transforming presence. We ask that your spirit will come to us, lighten our minds, transform our hearts, enable us to go out and be genuine lights in the world, to help bring people back to a true knowledge of you, that you may be glorified at this time in earth's history. So we may see you coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.